I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Lurkers, welcome to this week's episode. Before we get started, I want to let everybody know that I am once again looking for your stories to share for the Christmas Eve week episode. I am big on sharing ghost stories on Christmas Eve. It's an excellent old time tradition that I think needs to be revived. And last year we shared some personal stories from listeners and personal stories of my own. And I'm sure you don't always want to hear my stories. So please send in your own experiences with the paranormal. Doesn't have to be just ghosts. Could be an alien encounter, UFO sighting, cryptid, whatever creepy thing that has happened to you, you can send that in to lurkpodcast at yahoo.com. Or you can send me a message through our social media accounts. The other thing I wanted to mention is I wanted to apologize for not having an episode last week. It was like I went to bed Sunday night and woke up and it was the following Saturday um, with the Thanksgiving holiday in there. Life got really crazy and I had every intention of recording an episode. And then when I was running out of time, I thought I'm going to re-release an episode with a little bit of a blurb in there and all of a sudden it was too late for me to do that. So I apologize because I really try to get things out on a regular basis every Friday. Also, I got a new puppy and I really just like to sit on the couch with him and love him because he's my I don't want to say he's my favorite because I love Lucy too, who's my other dog. But Angus is a rescue. He is an English bulldog. He's not quite five months old. And I've always wanted a bulldog. And he's stubborn and built like a tank. Um, It's lots of fun when he likes to launch himself from the ottoman onto my chest when I'm sitting on the couch. And I'm fairly certain that the saying bull in a china shop has nothing to do with cattle. Uh, The bull in that phrase really refers to a bulldog because he just goes through whatever's in his way. Hopefully he will stay downstairs and he will not get in trouble so you won't hear my husband screaming at him. Because he eats everything. Anyway, you don't really care about my bulldog. So let's get on with this story. This is some a topic that I have been working on the notes for for way too long. We are going to be talking about the Allagash abductions. I have teased the topic a few times. I mentioned that I was working on the notes. I mentioned that I had thought that this was going to be a two-parter, and it is going to be two parts. The Allagash abduction occurred in Maine in 1976. I knew a little bit about this topic, but only because I had come across it when I was researching paranormal 
things that happened along the Appalachian Trail. So I, I knew just a brief little bit about it. Wanting a little bit more information, I came across the book The Allagash Abductions by Raymond E. Fowler. If you've been following Lurk for a while, you know that aliens really aren't my favorite topic, mostly because they scare the crap out of me. But I get it, many of you are interested in the alien thing, and according to a new poll, more Americans than ever before believe in aliens, so I suffer through. I mean, honestly, I believe in aliens. They just scare the crap out of me. I I mentioned before, ghosts, they used to be people. So they're, they're unnerving, but they don't scare the crap out of me. I live with ghosts. I've had many ghost encounters here lately, which you will learn about probably on the Christmas Eve week episode. They don't bother me. Cryptids, you don't really come across them very often. And if you understand animal behavior, you can kind of understand how to avoid any problems with them. Aliens, though, you don't know what they are. Like, what are they? Are they smarter than we are? Are they similar life forms? I I just, it's the unknown. That's what scares me. Anyway, I ordered the book, Allagash Abductions, and I was actually pleasantly surprised that I actually enjoyed it and looked forward to reading it. I expected it to be more like work, um, like homework, schoolwork. But that was part of the problem here is that I got involved in the book as entertainment, not just research. So instead of working on my notes as I went, I read the book for pleasure reading, which I don't get to do a lot right now because I spend most of my time researching. But I read it through because I was anxious to see what happened. Um, I do recommend the book. I am going to basically give you an overview of everything from the book, but there is a lot of detail, especially when we get to part two. I had to really cut back on some of the details that I will share. So if you're interested in this story after this episode, I recommend ordering that. Again, that's um, The Allagash Abductions, and that's by Raymond Fowler. So let's get to it. First, I want to go over the UFO sighting categories. These were terms coined by Dr. J. Allen Hynek, astronomy professor at Northwestern University and former associate director of Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. He also served as chief scientific consultant to the United States Air Force UFO Project. The categories of UFO sightings are NL, which is nocturnal light. It's an anomalous nighttime light pretty self-explanatory. I actually have experienced some NL categories of UFO sightings. DD is daylight disc. It's any UFO sighted in the daytime. RV is radar visual. That is a simultaneous radar and visual sighting. A CE is a close encounter, which is a UFO within 500 feet. A CE-1 is a close encounter of the first kind. That is when only the UFO is sighted. A CE-2 is the close encounter of the second kind, and that is UFO and physical evidence. 
CE3 is a close encounter of the third kind, which is a UFO and aliens. And the CE4 is close encounters of the fourth kind, which is a UFO abduction by aliens. Keep this in mind as we go through the story. As I mentioned, our episode this week takes place in an area of Maine known as the Allagash Waterway. It is a ribbon of lakes, ponds, rivers, and streams in the Maine North Woods that includes much of the Allagash River. It's 92 and a half miles of protected area. Canoeing, fishing, hunting, and camping are the activities permitted there. We're going to start with our cast of characters, so to speak. There were four men who were involved in this abduction, and they are often referred to as the Allagash Four. Jim and Jack Weiner were identical twins, born October 8, 1952. They lived in a rural area of Allentown, Pennsylvania, and had a happy, though strict, upbringing. As twins, they ate, slept together, shared everything, communicated with their own language, and also telepathically. As they grew up, they spent a lot of time outdoors. Jim eventually earned a bachelor's in psychology, and Jack earned a BFA in graphic arts. The third of the Allagash Four, Chuck Rack, was born January 23, 1949, and lived in Newton, Massachusetts. His summers were spent in his family's 21-acre waterfront property. Chuck had a rough childhood. His parents were divorced, and he had an abusive father and an alcoholic mother. In his early teens, he became a world traveler, traveling with his dad. He attended the University of Arizona, but had to drop out because of financial issues. He later attended the Massachusetts College of Art, where he became friends with the twins, Jim and Jack, and with a man named Charlie Foltz, who rounds out the Allagash Four. Charlie Foltz was born January 11, 1950, in Sharon, Pennsylvania. He had a happy childhood in a farming community in northeastern Ohio. He worked on and around farms most of his youth and joined the Navy after high school. While in the Navy, he was involved in their nuclear program and his expertise was in the disposal of radioactive waste from atomic submarines. He was discharged from the Navy in 1972 and went to night school and eventually transferred to Massachusetts College of Art and studied photography and art illustration. As part of the investigation of their abduction, the characters of the four men were looked into and their references were checked. Jim was described as having an absolute sense of integrity. He was known to provide a lot of services and didn't really want attention or credit for them. They were all given accolades for honesty. No one thought they were the kind of people who would perpetuate a hoax. Chuck Rack had taken a trip to Allagash before and had always wanted to go back. He visited Jack and proposed a trip to Maine to climb Mount Katahdin, then canoe up the Allagash. The twins, Jim and Jack Weiner, thought it would be fun and rounded out their group with Charlie Foltz. Midnight on August 20th, 1976, they left in Chuck's Chevy Vega, bound for Maine. They arrived at Baxter State Park gates at 8 a.m. on Saturday, with only four hours of sleep. 
they registered at the campground and set up camp. Sunday was spent hiking Katahdin. They hiked the 11 miles to the summit. Monday, they broke camp and headed north to Shin Lake. On their way, they stopped at a friend's camp to borrow their canoe as one of the two that they needed for their trip. Then they headed to Scotty's Flying Service. Everyone was in good spirits when they arrived at the Flying Service office. The plane that was flying them into the Allagash was a small Piper Cub-type plane with oversized pontoons, meaning it was set up to take off and land on the water. Their gear was packed into the plane, and it filled nearly the entire cargo space. There was so much gear that only three people could fit in the plane at a time, the pilot and two passengers, meaning the group would have to split up and be shuttled in two trips. Charlie and Jack went first, followed by Chuck and Jim. Charlie and Jack landed and unloaded the gear and waited for the rest of the group. Once they were reunited, they all discussed the spectacular flight. A ranger arrived at their camp to register their presence on the Allagash waterway. They all went to bed early, exhausted from their travels. Tuesday, they went canoeing between Chamberlain and Telos Lake. Just after dusk, they got to their campsite, and there were now other campers set up around them. A blazing light suddenly appeared in the eastern sky. Jim noted, The light was most peculiar. It resembled that quality of light one sees inside a pottery kiln at Cone 10, approximately 2,350 degrees Fahrenheit. There were some other campers on the beach, tending to a large fire, serving as a beacon for their sons, who were still out on the water. The other campers there commented on the bright star. But it was three to five times brighter than the next brightest star. Jim grabbed binoculars and immediately realized it wasn't a star. The object was only a few miles away, and about 200 feet above the treetops. It hovered perfectly still for a few seconds. Then the light extinguished from the outside edge to the center. Jim said, I had never observed a light implode like that before. This sighting falls under the NL or nocturnal light category. The bright object was soon forgotten, and they began getting camp organized and planned out their activities. Wednesday morning brought heavy rains, and they stayed under cover until the weather improved in the afternoon. They broke camp and headed up river towards Allagash Lake to trout fish. They ended up heading back because of the heavy current and camped at the intersection of the river and Chamberlain Lake. They decided to head to Eagle Lake the next day. Thursday was gorgeous and sunny, so they headed to Eagle Lake as planned. They reached Smith Brook Campsite, the most remote spot on the lake. They paddled out to fish, but caught nothing. That night, they ate the last of their meat. They had planned on relying on catching fish to supplement the meat that they had brought with them. So they decided to try some night fishing. The guys collected a large pile of logs and built a huge fire. Jim commented, The fire was so large that I was very worried that it would start a forest fire. The other guys told me to stop nagging them about it, but I was still concerned about it. The fire was necessary for them to find their way back to camp. 
The night was moonless, and there were absolutely no lights. They took only one canoe. Charlie Foltz was in the front, Chuck Rack was in the back, and the twins were next to each other in the middle and paddled with their hands. They were halfway across the cove, about a quarter of a mile from shore. I'm going to share each of the four's accounts of what happened next, starting with Chuck. Chuck said that he became aware of feeling as though he was being watched. He turned in the direction of where he felt the sensation was coming from and saw a large bright ball of colored light. It hovered without moving or making a sound about 200 to 300 feet above the southeast edge of the cove. Chuck exclaimed, That's a hell of a case of swamp gas. That's when Charlie stopped paddling as well, and the canoe slowed down. Everyone was watching the object. It changed color from red to green to yellow-white. Chuck could see a fluid pulsating over the front of the object. As Chuck's eyes adjusted to the bright light, he could see what he called gyroscopic motion, as though there were pathways of energy flowing equatorially and longitudinally from pole to pole. The pathways divided the object into four quadrants of bright colored light. The color changes were fluid. He could hear discussion in the canoe about what to do, but all Chuck wanted to do was stay there and watch the object. Jack and Jim were sharing the middle of the canoe. Jack turned and saw what Chuck was talking about. It was 200 to 250 yards away, rising out of the woods. It was large, bright, pulsing, round light that made no noise at all. They turned the canoe so that it was parallel to the shore, because they wanted a clear view of the object. The light rose above the treetops. It stopped and hovered above the trees. Jack said, It wasn't the moon or a star or anything like that. It was also not an airplane, helicopter, or any other recognizable conventional aircraft. The object was as large as a house, nearly 80 feet in diameter. They all sat in awe, wondering what it was. Jim was seated next to his brother Jack. From Jim's point of view, he saw a huge white-yellow round object above the treetop level. It was the size of a two-story house and had no protrusions and no windows. Jim didn't remember seeing colored lights. The object appeared solid and was completely silent. Jim said he recognized it as the same light they had seen at the campsite on Chamberlain Lake. It was extremely bright, like a mini sun, and it hovered there for five minutes. The men tried to rationally explain the object away as a weather balloon, but the strange light quality couldn't be explained away. Charlie came up with the idea to signal the object with his flashlight. Guys, I'm not sure that signaling a strange aerial object with a flashlight while you're in the middle of absolutely nowhere with no form of communication seems like a really, really bad idea. Like, really bad idea. I I really don't think that that's going to be a good thing to do. So we're going to start with Charlie's account here, from the point of signaling the object. Charlie thought at first the object was the moon rising when he realized it wasn't the moon. It was 15 to 20 feet above the trees. Charlie flashed at the sphere, three short, 
three long, three short, which, if you're not sure, is Morse code for SOS. When Charlie was done flashing the object, the object stopped abruptly, then slowly approached the four men in the canoe. See, I told you, not a good idea. The men agreed they should sit tight and wait to see if the object reflected in the water or somehow affected the water when it passed over it. By now, the light was only 40 to 50 feet above the surface of the water and still approaching the canoe. The guys decided to get off the water and onto land because they were worried about falling into the swampy water and drowning. Everyone started paddling except Chuck, who was not paddling and seemed to be mesmerized by the light. The object let out some kind of strange light beam directed at the water, and the light beam moved towards the canoe. Charlie yelled, Swamp gas doesn't have beams, as we all paddled, frantically heading towards the campfire. Chuck, who became inanimate, felt a bolt of panic take over the other three men, and heard frantic splashing as the canoe began moving forward, away from the light. Charlie never stopped watching the object, and he didn't help to try to paddle to shore. He wasn't afraid or panicked, and he was angry at the others for trying to flee. At this point, each of the four men had different memories of what happened. Chuck remembered staying in the canoe after the others had climbed out on the shore in a panic. Chuck remained mesmerized, sitting in the canoe, holding the paddle, unable to look away. He said the object seemed to respond to the panic of the other three men by slowly moving the beam of light away. The light veered away and Chuck watched as the object went from full moon shape to a thin silver moon crescent. It was the same wink out that they had seen two nights before. The object headed south towards Mount Katahdin and was gone in seconds. Jack and Jim were able to consciously remember a little more. They continued to paddle. Jack looked over his shoulder and saw the light was a large spherical object pulsing with a plasmic light that seemed to be boiling. The object was just behind them, and Jack realized they were never going to outrun the beam. Jim said there was no mistake it was coming directly toward them. Jim had a memory of the object hovering directly over them. The next thing Jack knew, they were on the shore getting out of the canoe. No one was in a hurry anymore, though they were frantically trying to get to shore only moments before. They all just simply got out of the canoe, walked to the left, and stood looking at the object that was now a few yards away and about 20 to 30 feet above the water. Jack was transfixed. The beam was coming out of the bottom of the craft, like the object was sitting on top of the beam. It hovered there in silence for four to five minutes. Jack began to feel sick to his stomach. Then the beam suddenly pointed upwards and the object moved up and away. It seemed to blink out, then reappear several times, moving higher in the sky before shooting off into the stars. Jim mentioned it vanished in the same implosion-like manner that he had seen two days earlier. Jim remembered the object coming straight at them and then hovering directly over them. Then he remembers standing on the shore watching the object hover a hundred feet above the lake, projecting some sort of searchlight on the water. The beam moved to point skyward and the object vanished. 
he saw it moving away at high speed, heading southeast. The object made no sound. The four men were in shock. They felt strange and tired. Jim, Jack, and Charlie stood there on the shore, unable to talk or move, as Chuck stayed in the canoe. The strange days wore off. Chuck got out of the canoe and joined the others as they went up the beach to camp. They were shocked to find that the huge bonfire they had built only minutes before had completely burned to coals. The fire they had built should have lasted two to three hours. Their whole experience only lasted 15 to 20 minutes, and yet the fire was nothing more than red coals. And there were no unburnt wood pieces at all. Everyone felt so strange, they didn't start another fire, and they just sat around camp at the table until they eventually fell asleep there, sitting at the table. The next day, they woke up feeling dazed. None of them could wrap their head around what had happened the night before. They packed up camp and continued to their next campsite. They signaled a passing ranger, and then the ranger arrived. They told him the whole story. Not surprising, the ranger didn't believe any of it. For the rest of the trip, they all were still in some kind of shock. They had no memory of what happened during the time it took for the massive bonfire to burn out. This is all they know about what happened until Jim Weiner seeks out Raymond Fowler for help. This, this second sighting is classified as a CE-1, or Close Encounter of the First Kind. Heineck defined this as UFO sighting reports that speak of objects or very brilliant lights close to observers, in general, less than 500 feet away. And this is where I end part one of the Allagash abduction. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be the continuation of the story. Or rather, it will be the part of the story that talks about what happened during their missing time, and also some other stuff. Remember, you can find Lurk wherever you listen to your favorite podcast or at lurkpodcast.com. On the website, you can find all the episodes and links to our social media accounts. Take a moment to like or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a YouTube channel if you prefer listening there. If you need some gift ideas for the holiday season, consider a Lurk shirt from lurkpodcastmerch.com. Don't forget to send us your ghost stories or other scary stories for the Christmas Eve episode. You can send that to our email address, lurkpodcast at yahoo.com, or through any of our social media accounts. And until next time, keep lurking.